And thanks to the internet, I have a, actually an email from a person that I'm going to read, but um, we have a chance to reach people that don't have teaching in their town or they don't have a gospel church to attend. So we pray for them every Sunday. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the dear brothers and sisters that you've uh, brought to yourself through the gospel that are scattered about the world some of whom are not finding uh, a gospel church in their area. And so they hear our teachings here. Lord, we pray for them, that you would encourage them and help them to find other brothers and sisters to gather together with, and that you would feed them the pure milk of the Word as they hunger for your truth. And Lord, we thank you for another Sunday to gather, to to pray, to uh, open up the Scriptures, to fellowship, to encourage one another. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I have an email here from someone. Just, I get dozens and dozens of these, but this one references one of our, one of our members here. <coughs> Excuse me. Dear Pastor DeWay, thank you so much for your email. It blessed me because it was the first direct positive I've had with a pastor in several years. That simply isn't done anymore, and at least not here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where we live and have deeply missed it. There are times when I still long for the love and support of a church family, but I have come to a certain degree of acceptance and peace over this situation. This is someone who, uh, an elderly couple who were um, in a church for 32 years, and they got driven out by purpose-driven. Okay. And um, then... and. What does she say here? It may not be God's plan for me to ever be a part of an organized church. That's up to Him. He has led me to some wonderful Christian email friends like Luann. She's been such a blessing, always there, always supportive, never preachy, critical, or attempting to be my spiritual authority, which would send me running in the opposite direction very quickly. So, thank you, Luann. <laughs> um, When she encouraged me to listen to your broadcast, that was the closest thing to an invitation the church have had in years. I believe there are some wonderful people in Minnesota. What you are doing to help those of us who have been damaged by so-called churches is wonderful. And she's going to try to get her sound card fixed so she can start listening. So um, there may be others here that would be willing to do that, like what Luann did, which is uh, be an email friend to somebody that doesn't have a church family. Yeah, exactly, and it's easy now with the internet. So I get these emails continually, and my heart goes out to people that don't have fellowship, or they've been hurt, or damaged, or pushed out of their churches. Um, we were studying two Corinthians two verse fifteen, two Corinthians two verse fifteen, and last week we did about half of this verse. We were talking about the fragrance analogy the acceptable fragrance to God, and we pointed out that that was an allusion to Leviticus, and someone read Leviticus chapter 1, and there it has to do with an offering that God was accepted. And this also is mentioned in Genesis. In fact, why don't I have... um, Robert, do you want to um, look up Genesis 8.21? And then Keith, Ephesians 5, 2. In the Genesis passage, 
this is used when Noah uh, exited the ark and made an offering. And then it talks about a sweet savor. So that's uh, Genesis 8, 20, and verse 21. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Yeah, it says the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth. Um, Brian, we were just talking about that on the radio, weren't we? About the imagination. They were, we were talking about these mystics who say the way to hear from God is to use your imagination to, to, to imagine Jesus and what he looks like and what his voice sounds like. And you do this imaginary Jesus, and then he talks to you. So we were talking about the fact that if you look up the term imagination in the Bible, it, this, we should have talked about that passage. I, I used the one in um, Jeremiah 23.16 where it says the false prophets speak out of their own imagination. Okay, And so this imaginary Jesus that's speaking to you that you have in your imagination is a bad thing. It's not the real Jesus of the Bible. That's, that's what we said. Okay, um, Ephesians 5 and verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Yeah, so Christ's offering and sacrifice to God is called a fragrant aroma. So now the analogy here, and I, I was reading in my, my lovely logo software all kinds of stuff about these uh, practices and in a lot of the ancient religions, they had fragrances that went with their worship, okay, and, and smells that they used in their worship. But here it says here, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So the, the Christian with the gospel on his or her lips is a person who is bringing something that's pleasing to God because it's brought in faith through Christ, and that it's always a sweet aroma to God. That's the sacrifice that he's uh, satisfied with, the one that Christ offered, Ephesians 5, 2. But it is having its effect on those who hear, and it always has a, a, an effect, no matter what. When the true gospel is preached, it always accomplishes what God sends it to do. All right, And, and Ryan was preaching on that here not too long ago from Isaiah. And what it does is it brings salvation to those who believe and it brings condemnation to those who do not. Because God is honored either way. Um, when, in other words, when the true gospel is proclaimed, if someone does not believe it, God is honored ultimately on the day of judgment because his justice is vindicated that the gospel was indeed preached. All right, And in the case of the saved, then there's this division, okay, the saved and the perishing. That, that brings us to another passage. Uh, Denise, are you ready? <laughs> Just got here and already have to read. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And it talks about this same division. There, there's no third group. There's no neutral group out there. It's impossible to be neutral toward the gospel. You either believe it 
or reject it. But you can't be neutral. And it, the gospel either brings salvation or brings condemnation. All right, now that was uh, 1 Corinthians one eighteen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So it's either foolishness to the perishing or the power of God to those who are being saved. Now, this is why we're adamant about gospel preaching in the church. And gospel preaching from the pulpit is one of the ways God uses to ensure that the church is the called out ones. Because the gospel is foolish to the perishing. So if you continually proclaim the gospel from the pulpit, people will either be converted or offended. All right? And if they get offended and go, then so be it. But it has the result of making the church, the invisible church, the majority of the congregation. Does that, does that make sense? You know those terms, invisible and invisible church? The, the invisible church is the true, truly saved. Okay? Anytime, uh, the visible church, by the way, is not the building. <laughs> you, if you go down a, a street and you see this big brick building with a steeple on the top and a bell, that's not the visible church. That's just a building. It would be the people gathered in the building or gathered anywhere. You could be outdoors. You could be in any place. You don't have to be in a building. But the gathering is the visible church. Now, in any visible church, there are going to be the true, truly converted if the gospel has been proclaimed at all. Now, there are visible churches, but I don't think there's probably one person in there that's a Christian. We can't be sure. But I, you could have a visible church. Well, let's take like a the Scientology or some I mean, of these cult churches, the unit... They don't even have the gospel, so they're not going to have the invisible church. Now, you may have one that's mostly uh, not saved. In other words, the pastor doesn't preach. The, let's take the Crystal Cathedral, for example. All right. If you are truly one of God's elect, you'd get really sick of listening to Schuler pretty quick. Amen. All right. Because you don't want to hear about your self-esteem and all that stuff because you know that you're an unworthy sinner. But on the other hand, you could be gathered there at the Crystal Cathedral and they sing an old-fashioned hymn, which they sometimes do. And in the old-fashioned hymn, <clears throat> one hears the actual words of the gospel and you could conceivably be converted. So there may be some invisible church in the Crystal Cathedral. There may be some invisible church in a Catholic church in even though the Catholic Church is doing everything they can to not allow you to know uh, assurance of salvation, there, if you hear about Jesus Christ who died for sins and believe, you'll be saved in spite of that church. Now, most people, <clears throat> most of the time, the people who are truly converted, they, um, by nature, long for the pure milk of the Word that they may grow it thereby. It, it's, it's, it's just as much the nature of a Christian to hunger for the true word as it is for a baby to long for milk. Right? It's, it's, it's just the way God recreates us when we're new creatures in Christ. And so if someone is converted in some unlikely location where the gospel is rarely preached, they're going to starve. Well, like this person or these people that email where they, they, they know they're starving. Uh, Keith and then Bob. Yes. I had a question. I think there's a third category. You said if you 
uh, preach the gospel, you're either converted or you're offended. Yeah. Isn't there a category of just being hardened, where you just sit there and you don't, on a mental ascent, there's a lot of people in the churches that have mental ascent. Okay. So you go back to the churches where the gospel is preached, and I don't want to believe it, but I will sit under it, and I will act accordingly externally, but I won't believe it, and my heart gets harder and harder and harder. Okay, I don't know if it's a third category. I, I mean, Paul's just talking about two, the perishing and those who are being they're, saved. They are, but there are some, there are some of the perishing. But they're not offended. That are willing to, yes, let, let's address that. Uh, what about the people that are not actually converted, but they uh, will remain in a solid gospel church and they're just mental assent, maybe false assurance or whatever. The Reformed theology addresses that. Uh, I heard, we heard Gerstner, remember him talking about that? In, in Reformed churches, which we had many in our town when I was a kid, oftentimes they're very, very good at keeping all the kids in the church. And in fact, there's huge pressure to stay in the church. And so they, they know that they have a lot of un, non-converted people in their church, and it's just, it's just part of what they understand. So Gerstner, who is uh, now with the Lord, but he was a brilliant Reformed theologian, Gerstner said, if they're willing to sit under the preaching of the Word and live a scandal-free life, then they should just stay here in a church, because who knows, they may become converted someday. In other words, they, rather than trying to have the church leaders determine who's truly converted and who isn't, which we can't do because we can't see the heart, we just say, if you're willing to submit to the truths of the Scripture and not bring shame upon the church by the way you live, then you can be a part of it because we don't know the heart. We can't see. Is that how you remember Gerstner? Bob, say, say what you're going to not Well, I just, I, w- I was raised Catholic. My dad was an ordained deacon in the Catholic Church. And I remember there was a point where my wife, who was non-Catholic, that's the way he kind of described it, was looking at becoming Catholic. And then I got involved in Bible study fellowship and started getting the Word of God. And so now I describe myself as a roaming Catholic. <laughs> small C, Catholic. Catholic, small C means universal church. Roaming right over the gospel. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Good testimony. So just by studying the Bible led him to the Lord. Uh, I was just saying that the perishing, okay, in our church, if I look at it here, you know, we have, God willing, continue to preach the gospel. We have the people that believe. We have the people that get offended and leave. And we have the people that don't believe that are willing to sit here. And I think that that category is a big danger for us in that we don't embrace with our heart but just our mind what's being said. And Jesus was talking about that when he was talking about the Pharisees. It wasn't that their external actions so much were contrary to the teachings of of what the law would demand, but he says you have covetous in your heart. You have these things in your heart and speaking to them and bringing the gospel to a heart issue and proving yeah. to them the lack of belief is a very, very uh, difficult thing to accept. And I think as we preach that, the more that we can bring a dividing line, the more that we can push so that you have to choose either or, that's a good thing. Yes, I totally agree. The more watered down it is so that we have the right. toleration for the muddy, you know, the clearer the gospel is, the more that dividing line comes. Exactly, and that's the very reason I've been so adamant against the seeker movement because I believe it's, it's, it's purposely trying to fill the church up with the non-converted, and you never actually... I got an email from 
one of our readers who had gotten this email from a pastor who has a secret church. And the pastor was explaining to this friend of mine why they weren't going to preach the gospel. They were having rodeo Sunday. Okay? And so they went all over the neighborhood and said, you got to come to our church. We're having rodeo Sunday. We're going to have horses and cowboys. And, and the gospel will not be preached. So you're safe, right? So my friend uh, Josh says to, said to, told to rebuke the pastor and said that was wrong and that was sinful and they should preach the gospel. The pastor wrote back and said, well, if we preach the gospel, that would be bait and switch. Yeah, because we're baiting them with a rodeo, so we got to give them just rodeo. We can't switch and give them gospel. So now, if you think about how astounding—that's so that so that means even the whole premise of the seeker movement doesn't work. They don't want to. We don't want to bait and switch. So when, if you ever at some point give them the gospel, you've baited and switched. Christian cowboys. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> Well, what about those people who want the gospel and they get switched because they get a rodeo instead? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, uh, but the point here is, is that the definition of the church called out once, the ecclesia, by definition, the church the, the, the invisible church are all those whose names are enrolled in heaven, as it says in um, Hebrews 12, the church of the firstborn. And that's true because of the gracious work of God through the gospel. It's not because of the personality of the leadership. It's not because of great music. It's not because of any wonderful thing that we do. It's, a, it's an act of God's mercy that anybody is saved. And it's a miracle that any one of us are willing to accept the idea that we're such a wretched sinners that we needed Jesus to die for our sins. And if we can accept that message, it's because God is working graciously in our hearts. So it's a sweet savor among the saved and the perishing. Now, in my research, um, which has been greatly uh, uh, helped by... The latest software, I'm telling you, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's like I'm a college professor with two or three teaching assistants. I used to envy that. I thought, this is no fair. What a gravy job. You know, if John Wheaton's hearing me, I'm not talking about you, John. Uh, but, uh, but I used to, my professors had these teaching assistants, and they want to write a book, they'd take one of their assistants. So I'd go to the library and find everything that was written about this topic that I'm writing on. And so these, these students are doing all the research, and then the professor's right. They, they just hand him the gravy. Oh, look at this, and look at that, and he does it. Well, now I'm just like that. The lo- I don't get a cut for saying this. The logo software is actually my own built-in research assistant. And I can tell the computer, go find everything that's been said about this, and boom, 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 it all comes back. So you got a gravy job? I got a gravy job. <laughs> <laughs> now I got a gravy job. <laughs> you don't buy that. Huh? We don't buy it. <laughs> okay. Now, this is what I found to be interesting, though, by using this software, is John Calvin's commentary on 2 Corinthians 2.15. Now, uh, some people are hyper-Calvinists. I'm not one of them. And some people who are hyper-Calvinists 
actually think they find their teaching from Calvin himself. But this, I'm going to quote from Calvin to show that he himself was not a hyper-Calvinist. Here is a quote from Calvin's commentary. Let me just start here. If, however, this is a sweet odor to God, it ought to be so to us also. Or in other words, it does not become us to be offended. If the preaching of the gospel is not salutary to all, but on the contrary, let us reckon that, is, that it is quite enough if it, if it advance the glory of God by bringing just condemnation upon the wicked. That's what I said earlier. If, however, the heralds of the gospel are in bad odor in the world because their success does not at all, in all respects, come up to their desires, they have this choice consolation. They can uh, give to God the perfume of a sweet fragrance and what is to the world an offensive smell. It is a sweet odor to God and angels. Uh, the term odor is emphatic, such as the influence of the gospel in both respects, that it either quickens or kills, not merely by its taste, but by its very smell. Wherever it may be, it is never preached in vain, but as invariably in effect, either for life or for death. But it is asked how this accords with the nature of the gospel, which we shall find him, a little afterwards, calling the ministry of life, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. The answer is easy. The gospel is preached for salvation. This is what properly belongs to it. But believers alone are partakers of that salvation. In the meantime, it is being an occasion of condemnation to unbelievers that arises from their own fault. Thus, Christ came not into the world to condemn the world, but for what need was there of this, inasmuch without him we're all condemned. But yet he sends his apostles to bind as well as to loose and to retain sins as well as remit them. Matthew 18. He is the light of the world, but he blinds unbelievers. John 9.39. He is a rock for a foundation, but he is also to many a stone a stumbling. Isaiah 8.14. We must also always, therefore, distinguish between the proper office of the gospel and the accidental one, so to speak which must be imputed to the depravity of mankind to which it is owing, that life to them is turned into death. So in other words, he calls the condemnation the accidental work and salvation the purposeful work. Now that is as far from hyper-Calvinism as you can possibly imagine because people who rail against the doctrines of grace were always saying this. I keep hearing this. Oh, so you believe God created people because he wanted to send them to hell. Have you heard that preached here? Have I said that to anybody? Have I ever preached that? Now here's Calvin saying just the opposite of that as well. That the depravity is already the fault of man. It's not God's doing. And his purpose is to bring light and to bring salvation. And the accidental work, he calls it, is an interesting term, is the, the condemnation. And Luther taught the same thing, that which is Keith is a Luther guy. He knows about it. No, but I was just saying, even in there, what he's saying is that inasmuch as we're saved, it's because God saves us. And in that same passage, Calvin says, if they don't listen, it's their own fault. It's yep. due to them. So inasmuch as we don't listen to the gospel, it's because we refuse it, not because... God, God wasn't yeah, God, offering God offers the, the gospel. To he everyone. offers salvation to everyone. That was Luther's doctrine, and here we're reading as Calvin's doctrine. So that's Reformed doctrine. Hyper-Calvinism came from somewhere else. I don't know. I suppose somebody thinking it could be more logical would say, well, that uh, 
God is uh, wanting to create people in order to send them to hell. But I don't believe that. The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, back to Brian. I'm glad you brought up this topic. I was trying to explain to a friend of mine uh, Arminianism and Calvinism. That's why I was up till 2.30 the other night. Um, I, I, I probably, it's because I, I don't fully understand the, the topic that well where, where I got confused and I wasn't able to explain it. I was at one point explaining that, of course, that we are the elect are predestined for salvation, but at the same time I was explaining Christian liberty to make decisions. If God knows the future, then he knows my decisions, but you're telling me at the same time I have complete liberty to make a decision if I want to be a butcher or a baker. So could you kind of explain the difference between predestined for salvation and yet at the same time have liberty, but doesn't he already know my decision? All right. <laughs> I have written about this topic and spent many years studying it. I'll have to give you a simple version. The fact is that even if foreknowledge itself is true, and no more, if foreknowledge is true, then the future is absolutely certain. Just think about it. God can't know something to be a certain way and then have it turn out some other way. And if foreknowledge is true, then how is it that God knows? And then that's been talked about by theologians. Well, even um, William uh, Craig, William Lane Craig, who uh, wrote a book on this topic from an Arminian perspective, he has a very, very he he believes in middle knowledge, very difficult to understand. But I read the book twice and, and absorbed it. I don't agree with Craig, but even he admits that our choices can't cause God's foreknowledge because that would be backwards causation, which is irrational. In other words, the 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 cause has to exist before the effect. All right, does that make sense? The cause must exist before the effect. So if God has foreknowledge before the foundation of the world, then our choice can't have caused his foreknowledge, which William Lane Craig admits is true, and that's what Jonathan Edwards said as well. So then the question is, is freedom real? And uh, I believe that it is, and Edwards solved the problem by giving a definition of freedom, which was the liberty to choose as you please. Right? As long as we are free to choose as we please, However, that fits in the bigger scheme of God working all things together for the good, God's foreknowledge, God's sovereignty, God's decrees, God's predestination, all of those things that kind of give us a headache when we try to think about them. Whatever you believe about those things, as long as we are free to choose according to our greatest desire, then we are free. That's what Edwards claimed. And, and so I would say... Um, we have an uh, article coming out Wednesday that explains this, the Christian liberty. You've seen it already, right? Yeah. Um, Christian liberty is that whatever God hasn't decreed in his moral law, that's, uh, we're free. We're not bound, we're loosed. And if we're loosed, we're free to make decisions. So therefore, we can be a baker or a cook or a bus driver or uh, we can... Uh, Name our kids whatever we see fit. Some people see fit in very odd ways, but um, Adam named the animals, and God wasn't going to come back and say, "Well, you didn't listen to me when you named that one." Okay, so 
so that's our freedom. And God's infinite wisdom is so great that he's even, even working through our free choices. And nevertheless, able to totally keep his sovereign plan perfectly on track. And only God could do that. How could a, no person could do that? Yes. Yeah, I think our view of God is much broader or bigger or greater than the, a lot of the, the Arminian view in that there's not a disconnect between absolute freedom of our choices and God's knowing the future and knowing it with certainty. He predicted to Daniel everything that would happen for 400 years from the captivity to Jesus and all of world history and the conquest from uh, Alexander the Great and the breakup of his empire and how that handled with all of his people in Israel and how that was going to happen. And all those people made choices and they lived pagan lives and just did what they wanted to do and God's will was accomplished and his purposes were accomplished and everything was set up for Jesus. It's not an either-or fact. The fact that it's both, and we have a theology and a belief that it's both, meaning that we have Christian liberty and we can have full confidence in God that as we choose, God's positions are being made and His His choices are even being made as we choose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was one of the arguments we have in this paper that's coming out Wednesday, that... There were no prophets in Israel from Malachi to John the Baptist. None. But yet in Daniel, the history of that period is so accurately predicted that the liberals said Daniel had to have written it after the fact. They No way could Daniel have known about Alexander the Great, the division of his kingdom into four, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, remember that part of history? That's all predicted in Daniel before it ever happened. And there was no prophet and there was nobody speaking for God on the face of the earth. All they had was the scriptures from Malachi. And they knew they had no prophet. But that didn't keep God from ruling over history. So what, what I'm arguing is that it's been the same way since the, the closing of the canon of scripture. That God has been perfectly fulfilling prophecy and ruling history for 2,000 years without an authoritative prophet infallibly speaking for God. And he's able to do so with people making whatever choices they make. Okay? And so for Christians, we know that everything that's not bound but has been loosed is the area of Christian liberty. All right? And that if we make choices that fall into that category, we in no way are going to harm God's plan for our life. You don't have to get revelations of the future to know how to please God into how his plan will go forward. And that's a liberating thing. It's a very liberating thing. And I don't feel like I'm going to be the monkey wrench in the, in the wheels of God's progress as long as I stay inside the dotted lines. Now, even if I um, break God's moral law, we still continue to go back to Christ for forgiveness. Yes? I know it's, I know it's, it's interesting to to delve into the different theories and stuff, but does any of this border on seeking secret knowledge? Uh, yeah, seeking good, uh, Mar- uh, Marcus, good, astute question. Very, very astute. Um, what's that? Oh, it didn't work. He asked, does this border on seeking secret knowledge? Okay. And the answer is, yes, it does. The secret things belong to God. And that's, that's what this article is going to be about. The secret things belong to God. So things that are yet future that he hasn't revealed, I don't know. 
And some people are going to like almost a Christian Ouija board or a Christian divination trying to divine the future of what God hasn't revealed. And it's the same reason in this series we're doing this radio show that will start broadcasting on March 12th, by the way, the series on Brian's book. We're talking about this because Brian is explaining how he was seeking that sort of knowledge when he was in the New Age and then how he found Christ. But then later... In the church, here are people trying to do the same thing that Brian was doing when he was in the New Age. Yes? What what we're saying is that the secret knowledge is still secret. We know that God knows it. We know that God didn't tell us it. But we can make decisions. And as I make my decisions, the secret knowledge isn't secret anymore because it's happened. Yeah, the providential will is revealed as history unfolds. I know that God joined me and my wife together, so he planned from all eternity that I would marry my wife. But until I put the ring on her finger... Uh, I didn't know. Yeah. And then everybody knew, just like me. Yeah. Then you know she was the one. And Troy knows who's the one too, don't you? He's getting married. (laughs) Because he chose. Yes, Rick. I was having this discussion myself the other day. um, And I brought up uh, all the instances in the Old Testament where, uh, let me just give this example of, you know, Jonah being sent to Nineveh to uh, forecast the, you know, God's wrath being, uh, unleashed on the Nineveh. And, uh, but Nineveh repented. And then Jonah was sitting there wondering, when is God going to do this? When is God going to do this? But so, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see lots of times, like during the Kings, where, you know, there was a, there was a warning of dis- destruction. And then the people repented. And then God didn't bring that wrath. So, I mean, so did God know ahead of time that they were going to repent or I mean see that's that's well, kind of that's kind of the rub there. Yeah, yeah. But in Jonah's case, Jonah knew they were going to repent. Because Jonah said, this is why I didn't want to come. I knew that you were a merciful God. <laughs> <laughs> and he hated the Assyrians. So not only did God know they were going to repent, Jonah did. He didn't want to preach to them. <laughs> and yeah, these things kind of uh you know, strain our mind, but beloved uh, let me tell you how you'll, you'll always be safe. Just believe every scripture. All right? And if one seems to contradict another, we know that God doesn't contradict himself, then accept the fact that maybe you don't understand it, but it's true. Okay? And so if it says chosen before, you know, you're predestined before the foundation of the world, then that's true. And if it says you must repent and believe the gospel or you shall be damned, then that's true. And so it's all true. Amen yes. to that. Um, the way I keep from getting headaches on these kinds of discussions, I, I, I have this that somebody gave me a long time ago. Uh, so I'm going to read this quote. Uh, the greatest sin of every Christian and of the Christian church is, is in, in general is to limit the eternal, absolute power of God to the measure of our own minds and concepts and understandings. That's a Martin Wow. <laughs> good, good one. Yeah, so that's how I keep getting hit. <laughs> we're not going to limit God. Um, actually, once this uh, paper comes out, it's issue 98, there's some st- things in there I think that will probably shock you. Um, becoming a false prophet to your own self. Yeah, but I, yeah, I'm claiming that people seeking personal revelations have become false prophets to their own selves on the ground that to be a true prophet, you have to be infallible, according to Deuteronomy 18. So if I say to myself, God, God told me 
that I have to whatever. Or God told me this or God told me that. I say that to myself. And I'm not infallible and I'm wrong sometimes. I just falsely spoke for God to me. <laughs> All right? And so I call it being a false prophet to your own self. And you know what I say? When that happens, don't listen to yourself. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, this just Arlene. summarizes it nicely. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Yes. So those are the two categories. And you know what the third category is? Occult. Yeah, it's forbidden. The secret things that are not revealed and belong to God, people seek divination to find those out. That's why they go to the astrologer. That's why they go to the Ouija board or the tarot cards. They're trying to find out secrets of, or maybe their own future life. Who should I marry? What job should I get? And so the, the pagans go seeking these things from the occult. Christians go seeking them from God when he hasn't chosen to reveal them. Don't, you know, just make your decision. God, who should I marry? God says, if you're a Christian, according to the Scripture, I can speak authoritatively for God. If you marry, you have not sinned. So what Paul said, in, even when Paul was giving his advice that they had to stay single because it was such evil days, he said, however, if you marry, you have not sinned. In other words, you have a choice. And when you don't know who God wants you to marry until after you make the choice. Now, that choice becomes God's will once you make it, no matter what your spouse ends up being like. Now, don't say amen if you're sitting by your wife. <laughs> yeah, amen. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, uh, but God... Uh, Maybe God knew you needed a, a, a difficult person to make you a better Christian. <laughs> yes. Okay. I, I think that people uh, from the charismatic or the, the, the miracle-seeking side tend to think that our view is limiting and, and unmiraculous and that our God is too small, when in actuality it's the inverse. Because I know that God works all things together for good, because I know that He has a plan that He will accomplish throughout history, because I know He's bought me and keeps me and my sins are forgiven Amen. and I have a certain eternity, I can boldly make a decision and trust God that whether the decision turns out good or turns out unhappy for me, that His purposes are being accomplished and I can go forward in faith because my faith is dependent on the outcome of my decision. It's dependent on Him. You know, um, absolutely. I came to the view that I have now back in the mid-80s and... I found it to be totally liberating uh, to understand what Christian liberty really is. Anyhow, I, you know what? Uh, I sent my article pre-published to a, a person that I know knows the Bible very well who believes the other view, the third will of God, that you're supposed to get personal revelations before, for every decision. And I sent the article to him asking him to critique it because, because the best thing you can find is adverse criticism from a very smart person if you're trying to make your writing better. And he sent back objections, and I don't think a single one of them was valid. And one of the first objections was, well, then you just believe in logic rather than relationship. And so my answer to that was to cite Romans 8. We have the Holy Spirit 
we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. We are led by the Spirit, meaning carried, as we've asserted in the past in Romans 8. God is causing all things to work together for good. We have the Holy Spirit praying through us in groanings too deep for words. We have access to the throne of grace. How is that non-relational? But his point was, unless we're hearing God speak back to us, it's not really a relationship. So then um, Keith helped me with this. We came up with an analogy. Suppose a man went to war and was captured by the enemy. And he, But before he went to war, he got married. And he had one love letter from his wife on his person. And when they captured him, they put him in jail, and they tell the prisoner that he has, he's not going to be able to communicate, and he can't send letters or receive letters, but he can keep the one he already had. Now, this prisoner in a foreign country, unable to talk to his wife or write a letter to her or receive anything back from her other than the letter he already have, would you say he has no marriage and he has no relationship? No. So I said in a similar way, Jesus Christ gave us his letter, the, the New Testament, and bodily ascended into heaven And he told us that he sent us another comforter who would bring to our remembrance everything he said. He didn't say the Holy Spirit would come and add new revelations, but he would bring remembrance, even for the apostles, of everything that Jesus had taught. And so all we have that we know is certainly hit from Jesus is what he gave us the letter. And so uh, we are uh, we have a marriage uh, we've been betrothed, as Paul said, I've betrothed you as a pure virgin to the Lord. Okay, And so, we have not had the ceremony yet. Our, our, the bridegroom has gone to prepare a wedding feast. And the, and the church has been longing for that wedding for 2,000 years. And he's going to come again. And, and bring us to himself and have that wedding feast. And so I think that's the analogy of the Bible. So how can you say that's not relational if we're not getting new revelations? Yes. And if somebody taking that same analogy, we go to that guy in prison and say, you're not married, it would be an attack on the truth, an attack on his marriage, because he is. Absolutely. In the same way that someone would come, well, we believe the Bible. Well, unless you have new revelations from your bridegroom, you're not married either. It's just the same thing. It's false, and it's an attack on the relationship that we do have. Absolutely. And we believe in him whom we have not seen. And we love our Lord Jesus Christ, though we haven't seen him. But it makes us long all the more for him to come. Yes. You know, I think in this discussion, um, this really should drive us to the Scriptures to, to see what it says about some of these topics. And I think of that passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? That's fabulous. <laughs> That's an astute reading. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. Absolutely. Absolutely. There it is. It just lays it right out. So, why, you know, the author of Hebrews who addresses this, I think the, the church as a whole, we, we taught through Hebrews here over about three years, but I think the bigger evangelical church is in desperate need 
to study the book of Hebrews. Because that would get rid of a lot of this stuff. And so there it says, there, Jesus spoke to it, and those that heard him told us. And it says, we have access to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Okay? It doesn't say we have access to further new revelations. It tells us that God hears us. You don't have to hear God to know that God hears you. All right? So, how do we get it on this? Oh, reading Calvin. All right. So, I read a quote of Calvin to prove that Calvin was no hyper-Calvinist and that he called the damnation of those who rejected gospel an accidental work sort of a byproduct of the true work, which is the salvation of God's own sheep. Is that, did you get that? Next verse, 2 Corinthians 2.16. To the one, now it's talking about this group, these two groups, those who are believing and those who are perishing, and the aroma. So the aroma, it says, to the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? In other words, Paul is thinking of how awesome it is to be entrusted with the gospel that's going to do this. In ourselves, we'd have to say no one is adequate, but yet Paul will say later he has made us ministers of the new covenant. God has made us adequate because the adequacy isn't in our eloquence, it isn't in our intelligence, it isn't in our charm, it isn't in how cute or winsome or wonderful we are. It's in the words of God. Those words of the gospel spoken by a person that's not swift of speech and not confident of self are powerful enough to save the lost because they're God's words and they will accomplish what he sends them to do. So on one hand, we say none of us is adequate. What, but on the other hand, what a glorious privilege to have the words of life. When, when the people left Jesus in John 6, and they, uh, because he offended them by telling them about the blood, okay, and then the blood atonement, and they left. And Jesus said to his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says to Jesus, no, where shall we go? Because only you have the words of life. And those words of life that Jesus gave us are ours to preach with authority. They are revealed. They aren't the secret things. They're the things revealed that are for us and our children's children. And we can speak them with full authority. And every one of us can prophesy. And when we speak the truth of the gospel, we prophesy. When we say to people that Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, and that they must repent and believe the gospel, we are speaking with the absolute authority of God, and we do so in the name of Jesus, and those words are binding. So that's, that's where Paul is thinking. Who is adequate for these things? Well, everyone who has the words of life. Now, from death to death in the Greek, the, the, there's two different prepositions, ek and eis. Ek is... Out of, ice is into. Okay? So, out of death, into death. And I have a quote here I was going to... Oh, I see what something else I had I was going to show you. Oh, wow. I got all kinds of goodies here. 
Bob, you're going on to verse 16? Yes. In, in the New King James, it says, To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Yes. Um, that's a very good translation. And again, remember I tell, told you how these commentators have to use the NIV because of the publisher requiring it because they were the ones selling the NIV? And then they have to correct it in every, almost every time. Here, now, I'm not, if you have, if you love your NIV, that's okay. But, uh, the New King James is a very good translation, by the way. If I would, I wasn't using my New American Standard, I would use the New King James. The New King James only? No. <laughs> the New, the New, the King James only people hate the New King James for no good reason, but, uh, here's, here's what it says here. Paul says that to some we reek of death. It is not surprising since his message is Christ crucified and he himself is always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, 2 Corinthians 4.11. The NIV perhaps misses a nuance of meaning by translating the phrases that read literally the smell from death to death, osme ek thanatu, ice thanatu, and the smell from life to life, and the same in the Greek as simply the smell of death and the fragrance of life. No, see, the NIV missed the point there, all right? Um, Paul may have more in mind than simply a deadly odor or a life-giving fragrance. The preposition ek refers to the source or nature of the apostolic message. The preposition ice refers to the results. Okay, so the source and the results. And and the New King James brings that out very well. Clement of Alexandria interpreted the phrases to mean that unbelievers regard the preaching of Christ's death on the cross as foolishness or a stumbling block, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 23, and that this response results in their own death. Believers, on the other hand, do not view the cross as merely death, but as something that offers them life, and this response leads to greater life. So from death into death, from life into life, all based on the same message of the cross, and the only difference is the response of the hearers. Some hear the cro- message of the cross, and their heart is pierced and is softened, and they believe. And some hear it, and they're offended. What kind of God? Have you heard people say this? What kind of God would kill his own son? That's, that's what some say. All right, I got four minutes to share what I was going to share after the thing about Calvin. I was going to, sh- I, I printed out from one of the seminars we did, and this is on a DVD, but I found the PowerPoint, and I just want to show you just how diametrically opposite of what Paul said the seeker-sensitive church is. Paul is saying that we must proclaim this message, whether it's unto life or unto death, it's the same message. Now here, I'm, qu- I'm quoting from the purpose-driven church. Quote, the answer is quite simple. Create a service that is intentionally designed for your members to bring their friends to and make the service so attractive, appealing, and relevant to the unchurched that your members are eager to share it with the lost people they care about. Next slide. This is all quotes from the same book. It is my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover a key to his or her heart. Now, isn't that the opposite of what Paul just said? How are you going to get the people that are going from death to death to want the cross when they consider it a loathsome thing. How are we supposed to do that? Well, here's what he says. It may take some time to identify it, but most likely place to start is the person's felt needs. So if the person doesn't feel the need for the cross, 
then you've got to give them something else that they do feel. Quoting on. Catching fish on their terms means let your target determine your approach. Now compare that. Did, did you hear that? So the target is the lost, and they're going to determine what I preach. Now how do you square that with what we just studied in 2 Corinthians uh, from Paul? We only have one message. And it's a message of the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's a sweet savor unto life or unto death. And there's nothing we can do to change that. And if we find that whole group out there from death into death and say, all right, sorry, we did it wrong. We missed your felt needs. And we're going to come back as safe to our, come back to church. We won't hear that again. We're going to give you what you want to hear. Um, you want to bring that over to Brian? Let me do some more quotes. Now, notice, first of all, uh, Pastor Warren says the fish determines the approach. They decide to bait. Now, then, listen, here's what he says. Quote, while most unbelievers aren't looking for truth, they are looking for relief. Now, do you want to know where the social gospel comes from? Well, if they don't want truth and they're going to determine what you preach, you can't preach the truth. So you just got to offer relief. Solve, we're going to solve problems like Jose Silva. Silva mind control. Solve problems. The ground, here, notice this. Talk about the church not being the ecclesia. Quote, the ground we have in common with unbelievers is not the Bible, but our common needs hurts interests in, as human beings. Well, why do we need to have common ground with the unbelievers? Here's what it says. Quote, because people, preachers are called to communicate truth, we often mistakenly assume that unbelievers are eager to hear it. But unbelievers aren't that interested in truth these days. In fact, surveys show that the majority of Americans reject the idea of absolute truth. That's, that's why we have the emergent church. There's no truth, so we don't want to give it to you. People feel the same emotional and relational needs. These include the need for love, acceptance, forgiveness, meaning, self-expression, and a purpose for living. People are also looking for freedom from fear, guilt, worry, resentment, discouragement, loneliness. So that's what you're supposed to preach on. But here's the problem. We've already determined that, that they're offended by the cross. How are you going to give people freedom from guilt with no cross? There's no such thing. So I'm not just making this up. And uh, pastors out there just won't listen. They, they say, oh, no, you, you know, you're mischaracterizing. No, that's, I didn't, that's what it says. And this is what Paul says. You can't believe both. You can either have Paul's truth or this purpose-driven, but you can't have both because they're in contradiction to one another. Yes, Brian? They're disobeying God's Word from the very beginning just by the fact that they're designing church for the unsaved rather than God's Word saying that church should, the gathering of the saints should be for the saved. Right. And that's why I call it redefining. So we can't even agree on a definition of the church. We can't agree on a definition of what should be proclaimed in the church. So... With heaviness of heart, we see our beloved evangelical movement losing its message even as we are in these very end of the last days. And it's, and it's a sad thing. And, and my heart, a guy drove all the way down from another city to see Diane and I yesterday to pick up some copies of, of my book. And he telling the same story. Very wonderful guy. Only been a Christian for eight years. And he wants to hear the Word of God. And, he, and he's got a meeting with the elders to ask them if they will preach the Word of God in their church. And he says, my friend already went to such a meeting and was kicked out of the church. What, hello. So, so you come, one of you, Troy, 
comes and says, Bob, will you preach the Word of God? you got a bad attitude. <laughs> I was going to tell you about it. No, I'm just kidding. I just can't imagine it. Yes. You know, what's interesting is, you know, with the war in Iraq and the whole thing with Muslims, you're hearing a lot of comments about what's being preached in mosques, that the mosques, they're training these people to hate America and all that. And I'm, yeah. I'm just kind of, as I listen to this, I'm kind of going, well, how is that real different than what we're really teaching in a lot of our churches, not hating America so much, but really not accepting the truth of the gospel. Yeah. We we have a sacred responsibility to be a sweet savor to those who are being saved, even if it makes us odious to those who aren't. Right? You can't be a you can't be true to the gospel and have everybody love you. It just doesn't work that way. So uh, next week we'll look a little more at this analogy, and then we're going to talk about how Paul said that he doesn't peddle the word of God, but but preaches it with sincerity. And the next so many sessions out of Second Corinthians are going to be about, actually for several chapters, about new covenant ministry, about the truth of the gospel and the word of God, and what does it mean to have a pure and unsullied ministry. Because Paul is defending his own ministry and how he preached in their midst against some people that are criticizing him. So... That'll be very instructive as we study Second Corinthians together.